0: I'm Tom Barberley, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have two callers on the line. Hello, first caller.
1: Larry Jaeger. hi.
0: Hi, Larry. Good, good to talk to you. We have a second caller on the line who I believe is Bruce Damer.
2: That's right.
0: Hello, hi, Bruce. Right.
2: Hello. Hello, Larry.
0: So we have only very brief news and notes uh, before we get into this evening's continuing show topic with with Larry. Um, The next episode, January 23rd, 8 p.m. Pacific, Zan Gill, like Larry, will return, and I've asked Zan to talk about artificial life and the environmental movement. This was something that she touched on briefly in her last appearance on Bios Live, and also something which she talked about to slightly greater length at the greater meeting in San Francisco. But I wanted her to, to talk a little bit more about her ideas with regards to how artificial life and the environmental movement are inextricably interconnected. And I'm sure she will provide a, a number of insights and probably even more than uh, when she talked to Grayson. Bruce, you were at that Grayson meeting, weren't you? Yes, indeed. So I think it'll be interesting to hear what Zan uh, what has to say, particularly with regards to her changing thinking and interlinking with her other aspects, which she talked about uh, when she was last on Bias Live. And February the 6th, this is one for Bruce to attend as well. Mark Badeau will be on. This is his first appearance on bio Live. But I think we had him on probably about two years ago now with regards to a Biota interview. And a number of topics, again, to discuss with Mark. I think, obviously, uh, his recent book that Bruce is now a, a scholar of. What was this, Is it Proto-Life? Is that his most recent book?
2: It's a Proto-Cells uh, Bridging non-living and living matter.
0: Right. Protolife is his company, so he'll have an opportunity to give us all an update with regards to wet artificial life, what he's doing with Protolife specifically, and possibly also discuss one of the topics that we're going to be discussing with Larry this evening with regards to the curriculum of artificial life as it's being taught in in various universities, because I think certainly the Artificial Life Journal can uh, lead the field, or at least the discussion with regards to that topic. So it'll be wonderful to have Mark on uh, Biota Live, so if folks want to call in on that one, it's February the 6th, 8pm Pacific, we'll have Mark Badeau. So at the end of last year, I asked for feedback, this is obviously the second year of Biota Live, and we got a lot of feedback in, a lot of interesting, a lot of positive feedback, And one piece of feedback that uh, amused me slightly was the idea of algorithms and blues. And algorithms, obviously, we're going to discuss a little bit more with Larry this evening, but the idea that uh, some of what we do in Bios Live is is fundamentally about the poor and oppressed artificial life developer, and that certainly uh, made me chuckle a little, and i passed it on to others in the community as well. I think what we're trying to do with Bios Live currently is, is talk about, the current state of the art, the current developers, what their experiences are, and, and motivations towards the future. And whilst some of that may seem a little bleak, I know we talked about the artificial life winter towards the end of last year, and no doubt these kind of topics will be coming through, particularly quality of life issues, these kind of things. I think it's important to have this discussion in order to move the the whole, uh, you know, the whole thing forward in a productive direction. So we'll try to tone down some of the blues elements with regards to. This year's Bio Live, Alive, uh, but it may come up through general discussion. So, Bruce, I received uh, three videos from you and your uh, comrades uh, this week with regards to I Am Darwin. Would you like to talk a little bit more about your I Am Darwin videos?
2: Yeah, uh, you've got one from myself, uh, Alan Lundell, who, of course, is the, uh, my friend and neighbor and co-founder of the Digibarn Museum, and Nick Herbert, who's a well-known physicist and author, uh and we decided to do three of, three, of these, three of these at once, and I think they'll really fit what you're trying to do.
0: Certainly, and I predicted uh, both Al and Nick's uh, videos would be controversial, and certainly by the star ratings, I think folks have, uh, have felt Nick's instigation. I mean, I think people should check out i-am-darwin.org to get the three videos. We also got a, a submission last night from a, a young film producer in New York which I thought was very nice, and also by his own Jeffrey Ventrella. We've eased the requirements, um, particularly from Bruce's three submissions, so you can see some of the other formats that people are starting to submit in for the I Am Darwin videos. And uh, Larry, does this sound like something that you'd want to do? Uh, indeed. I was actually glancing at a few
1: of those um, just before calling in and uh, thinking, oh gosh, I ought to get round to
0: doing this. Terrific. Yeah, it would be wonderful to have you on the uh, on the side, and certainly some of your cohorts at Indiana, I think, will probably also uh, create some quite impressive i'm Darwin videos. Particularly now, people are inserting their own graphics and inspiration. I think there's a, a lot of visualization potential through the the videos coming up. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that.
1: I, I was thinking it might be nice to to throw a little bit of PolyWorld visualization, interweave it somehow. I have no idea what'll come out, but we'll see. That's the nature
2: of the experiment, I think.
0: So, Bruce, are you going to be in? Are you going to be in London for Darwin's birthday?
2: Yes, uh, there's a big event being organized by Rachel Armstrong at. I'm not ah. sure the location is part of the Bartlett School, uh, University of London, and she was talking about some major location in London, but it's it's, uh, it's uh, an event right on the evening of uh, the February 12th of Darwin's 200th birthday.
0: Yes, I'm not sure. I don't think we'll be recording a Biota Live um, in that week, our Biota 6th, and then we have one following that. Um, but certainly, as I was thinking about the, the the dream list of folks that I'd like to have on this year's uh, Biota Live, obviously Chris Langton and Richard Dawkins are uh, long-time attempts at, uh, at getting both of them on. Do you get a sense that you'll be communicating with Dawkins this year, Bruce?
2: i think i will i think that the evil grid project will get sufficiently developed that perhaps in the fall i'll take a trip up to oxford and hope to have tea with him again if that can, if that's possible these days
0: well i was looking at his wikipedia entry and also the wikipedia entry with regards to the blind watchmaker and both of them had been expunged in terms of his uh you know founding father or at least founding participant status associated with artificial life so Maybe this is a shout-out to the biotech community that if folks want to uh, look at those two Wikipedia entries and make noticeable corrections, I, I, either that or maybe um, you know maybe his legacy is moving away from artificial life. Larry, you've, you've talked about meeting Richard Dawkins in the past. What's your sense with regards to his impact on the artificial life community? Well, it was huge on me um,
1: at that very first artificial life conference that Chris Langton organized uh, back at Los Alamos. Uh, Richard was one of the speakers and, um, he, uh, was very inspiring and, and lots of interesting ideas about, um, as people were talking about, you know, life existing at the edge of chaos. Uh, I think it was, uh, Richard who said something about, um, in fact, a key, uh, aspect of living systems that they may be constantly evolving to have greater evolvability. And that was kind of pictured as spiraling up this, uh, edge of chaos, uh, uh, it was a lovely image and, and very inspiring. I, 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 I've also spoken with him specifically about uh, PolyWorld because uh, uh, when I was, I was doing that for Alan Kay and the Vivarium program, and Richard Dawkins was, was an advisor to, to the program, so we got a chance to sit and talk about it. The very very early days, and uh, there's still a, a miscegenation function in there that was kind of his at his behest. Um, So uh, I I know that uh, you know he has expressed interest. As a matter of fact, he wanted to use video from PolyWorld at his um, Royal Society Christmas lectures, and I prepared a tape for him and sent it off. And they had a failure of the um, the uh, VCR that would translate NTSC into uh, um, uh, their video format. And uh, so it ended into a PAL format, and so it ended up not being able to be used. It was very, I was very depressed over that. But um, so I know he's had an interest in it in its early days. Could you explain what you mean by um, his the, his artificial life things being expunged from Wikipedia? A little background on on what was there and what isn't there anymore.
0: Well, I track this um, kind of passively, but certainly, I mean, when you think about the blind watchmaker, that is, uh, you know pretty well a turning point in the number of artificial life developers thinking and also quite explicitly in artificial life related text. Um, it struck me as quite strange that, uh, I, I recall reading previously artificial life references in the Blind Watch Baker article in Wikipedia, but certainly with regards to Dawkins' own entry, uh, there used to be a number of uh, links backwards and forwards into the artificial life section of the Wikipedia entry and actually had the explicit tags. Um, or, uh, Richard Dawkins from Artificial Life back into his own entry. So, I don't know, this thing evolves in a very curious ways. We have obviously um, had Jay Lemon on the podcast quite a while back, and I've had some correspondence with Jay associated with Jeffrey Ventrella's entry. It's a very curious thing, Wikipedia. I think the current state uh, associated with Artificial Life in particular has a number of gaping holes and certainly doesn't give a coherent history over the period of time that uh, certainly you started developing Polyworld and I started developing Noble Ape. I mean, the 90s are pretty well eliminated and I think even the, uh, you know, the later projects don't feature as heavily as they could. Mm. But ultimately I think in some part the responsibility goes back to the community. I mean, my correspondence with Jeffrey and uh, John P. Daigle and Jay Lemon associated with Jeffrey's own work um, related to who was making these edits and how these edits were being made and certainly, whilst there is history, there is history associated with pseudonyms and IP addresses, and it's impossible to track a coherent sense of what is actually going on with regards to all these entries. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know... You should try it <laughs> with a scanner. Uh, a, a student of
1: mine, uh, Virgil Griffith, who's off now at... Uh, who gave that Google talk on Polyworld and is now at uh, Caltech Computational Neuroscience uh, Group. Uh, also did Wikiscanner, I think that's the name of it, Uh, that thing that lets you uh, uh, look at articles in there and find people who've edited look for, uh, and and it does backtraces on IP addresses and finds out who's editing
0: what. So there are two problems with that. Firstly, Wikiscanner typically um, works towards corporate IP addresses, but when you have a a hobbyist community that have varying Internet addresses and particularly... With regards to, I mean, if it's coming from Dawkins' own community, if it's coming it from just people against Dawkins, I mean, it's impossible to track this kind of stuff. The second problem is with regards to the deletion of entries. And I can't remember whether Polyworld has maintained a coherent Wikipedia uh, link. It has been maintained certainly over the period of time that I've tracked it most recently. But a problem that Jeffrey was having was that every project that he would worked on, including um, their dot com and a wide variety of other uh, non artificial life specific um, entries, had a history of, of being deleted and reinstated and deleted again and then reinstated. <laughs> and I don't know how effective WikiScanner would be with regards to the reinstatement. But this is a kind of you know behind the scenes politicking associated with just maintaining a coherent history associated with artificial life. So there are half a dozen of us that do track these things, but I found it particularly strange looking at, uh, you know, the current entry for Dawkins and also the Blinds watchmaker that there was no discussion associated with artificial life in either of those entries. Huh. But just also talking about, uh, you know, founding folk that I would like to get back in the conversation. You mentioned last time you were on, Larry, that you use um chris langton's papers as kind of uh bookends to either side of your course do you that's right do you have current communication with chris langton do you get a sense of his willingness to you know interact with something like biota live
1: well actually i'm pretty sure chris would would not be interested in doing it he's kind of he's just gone a different direction with his life and um there were some issues that I really don 't want to get into Definitely. between him and s f i
0: yeah no I think I think I mean most of the community are, are privy to at least the precursory nature of that. My concern is that what we 're trying to do with biota is actually and i 've done this quite explicitly with Steve Grand over a number of months, reinforce the fact that this is a new contemporary uh, not necessarily historically polluted project what we 're trying to do here is motivate and um, you know the likes of uh, you know, Virgil Griffith, the next generation of folk that you saw as as undergraduates and graduates as at A life Ten of eleven to become part of the discussion, and we need to have a coherent view of the history. I had correspondence today with Carl Sims actually in that light, and I think the the need is in some regard and I do appreciate the nature of these kind of deep rooted, particularly you know Chris life's work associated with artificial life, the kind of emotion and things attached to it. But nonetheless, if there's going to be a coherent history written, and this is the point that I've made back to Dawkins and his people as well, it would be wonderful to have these people actively, even if they just participate as Steve Grant did with regards to three relatively potted interviews that were very much under Steve's control. I mean, I could certainly offer those to, to Chris and uh, Professor Dawkins without any problem. But I think the need currently is that we have a coherent history It includes the historical legacy, includes what went on in the 90s, which isn't actively represented in Wikipedia, and empowers the. I just looked at
1: Wikipedia while we were uh, talking about it here, and uh, indeed, the only mention of Chris Langton's name on the entire page is uh, a reference down at the very bottom.
0: Exactly. uh,
1: So, I mean, yeah, there's a real dearth of information about the origins of the field. That's not really. it's not appropriate. I think you're, you're right. That could really use some editing there.
0: Hmm. But it would also, I mean, I think it also requires people like uh, Chris Langton and Richard Dawkins, if they don't, you know, if they're not regular callers into Bios Alive, to at least participate in the kind of oral history component of what I'm trying to do with these podcasts. And certainly, I've made this point quite strongly back to Professor Dawkins and his folk. And I think Bruce will go on, on bended knee in order to try and. Uh, you know, reconnect in in some real sense with regards to Professor Dawkins, but when I was looking at, this will be my fourth year of recording these podcasts come March, and when I'm looking at uh, people that I'd like to participate, even if it is, you know, in a secondary way, even if it is someone such as yourself talking with Chris, Larry, or, you know, these kind of passive interactions, it would be wonderful to have some kind of oral history sense associated with these people. Well, for what it's worth, I tried, I, I,
1: I, I, He traded some email with Chris to see about getting him to participate in any fashion that he would choose, including my preference being a, a keynote speaker uh, at um, a Life 10 uh, because I was a co-organizer for it. I could do that. Just ask him, and uh, he he, you know, said thanks but no thanks. And uh, I, I, I'm afraid you're going to get the same response.
0: Uh, I, I think you'll need to send virtual after to him. I think the next generation has a a tenacity that perhaps we lack in some regards. And
1: as you say, no um, sort of no links with the the the, the bad parts of the past, no bad memories attached. So who knows? Maybe.
0: Barry, I think you probably, out of the people that appeared on BiotaLive last year, generated a, a sizable amount of correspondence. We have had on some quite controversial guests, and thankfully you weren't too controversial. But you did leave a, a number of questions of the community, and I think the, the two interesting components that came through were the, the idea of the low-level algorithms that we started discussing, and this was the feedback from the, the uh, correspondent who emailed me about algorithms and blues that we should talk more about, uh, the algorithms, what algorithms artificial life need artificial life developers needed to know a kind of groundwork, but this also leads into the idea of teaching artificial life, which I wanted to talk to you about in a in a kind of fuller format this evening. so if we start with the idea of algorithms i mean i I do appreciate when you teach your course particularly in terms of giving papers, the algorithms are there, and the context is there but if you were you know if you were talking to someone such as Virgil when you first met him or these kind of people, what kind of algorithms would you encourage them to to read about or learn or start implementing in their own work? Well, to a certain extent, it depends entirely
1: on, you know, what approach they want to take to artificial life. It's a pretty large area. Um, Almost certainly they should know something about genetic algorithms because evolution is key to almost any of the AI systems. Although, I mean, there are people who study... Um, you know, rabbit fox or uh, uh, r- rabbit and uh, lettuce patch, uh, Lotka Volterra predator prey interactions, and you watch the and and study how um, you know populations of agents interact without evolving anything. So e- even that's not a, a given that it's a necessity. But all the stuff I'm interested in involves evolution, and uh, so genetic algorithms is an obvious place to start. Um, uh I happen to particularly care about models of nervous systems, so artificial neural networks is a key area um but not everybody has to do that. Some people are doing things that are a lot more um uh morphologically uh dynamically motivated and so you know spring networks and mass you know mass spring combinations such can be uh you know inc- incredibly rich in what they're capable of the animations they're capable of producing so but, but for me, neural networks is key. Um, uh, I suppose um, I, I'm cheating a little bit here and looking at some of your suggested notes in this area, and you, which reminds me that some people very much need feel a need to uh, look at physics and incorporate some sort of physics engine. I, I chose to try my best to finesse that in, in my work just because... Um, I knew it would take an enormous amount of computational time, and and wanted to uh, extract the most I could out of my artificial neural networks and uh, evolution.
0: So looking at those two things initially, and digging a little bit deeper than my kind of dot point notes, um, neural networks as a concept. I mean, take I mean, in terms of the folks coming into artificial life who may be listening to this podcast, I think. You know when I used to develop Noble eight prior to it becoming a you know fully fledged flag way of giving open source application, I would get emails from kids as young as you know thirteen fifteen. I think the youngest kid who emailed me was a twelve year old but it was that kind of age group, and they were really looking for software that they could tinker with, and I appreciate it as well because this is fundamentally about the time that I started writing agar simulations myself. And uh, my knowledge of mathematics back then was very, very applied. I didn't really understand calculus. I didn't understand, you know, all these kind of computational fluid dynamics that I think, you know, the process as yourself and myself kind of take for granted through our various studies in, in you know, university and what have you. Right. But in terms of this kind of age group, where would you start in terms of writing a kind of genetic algorithm experiment?
1: Well, you know, genetic algorithms are actually, I mean, there are... People spend their entire careers uh, studying how to make them work more efficiently under certain conditions and uh, how to make them work work more robustly under certain conditions. But in principle, they're sort of delightfully simple. Um, You have this bit string, um, and you make the, the ones and the zeros of the bit string correspond to something you want your model to do. And um, you go around uh, flipping bits occasionally with random mutations, but that's pretty pretty usually the small part of the changes. And more co- and that the sort of the the greater progression in evolution comes from the mixing and matching of so-called crossover, where you take a bit of DNA from one parent and then switch over and use a, the next bit of DNA from the other parent, and then go back to the first and so on. And um, you just mix and match bit strings and. Um, produce the next generation and turn them loose. Uh, In principle, it's it's sort of delightfully simple. Um, So then it becomes a matter of, well, maybe figuring out exactly what you want to apply it to. Um, And, gee, I mean, genetic algorithms have been applied to so many things from the shapes of airfoils to... Derive, you know, deriving the Mona Lisa as uh, we saw just recently. Uh,
0: so in an artificial life context, however, I mean, I think probably the, the most simple two examples: uh, cellular automata with genetic algorithms as central components, either with regards to the consumption of energy or various movement principles or breeding principles or all these kind of things. And I think what you're saying with regards to simplicity rings true with my own uh, experience and experiments as well that you start putting genetic properties on a wide variety of factors and then the genetic algorithms do all of the work for you. So in that regard, I guess genetic algorithms are probably simpler for someone to initially implement than something like a neural network. Can you imagine someone without a, a university-level education implementing a neural network? And if so, how do you think they should start?
1: Um, I, I can, actually, um... Uh, like Neural networks also, uh, here again, you know, there are a huge number of different models of, of ways you can approach it from incredibly complex Hodgkin-Huxley model with uh, uh, t- tens of parameters, uh, each of them biophysically motivated, And it's you're solving differential equations, and uh, you know it's really complex. Two, something like I'm using in in PolyWorld is actually remarkably simple. So-called summing and squashing neural networks. Basically, you just say, okay, you got a bunch of a bunch of artificial neurons. They have some activation, maybe between oh zero and one, and then you for you look at the connections uh, between neurons, and you have some way of specifying what's connected to what and then to calculate sort of the next state of one of these neurons, you just sum up the things that connect to it times the weight of the connection between those neurons, maybe shove it through a sigmoid, which is just this this 1 over 1 plus e to the minus x. It's just a simple way of compressing it back down into that range of 0 to 1, boom, you're done. I mean, you know, that's it. That's the extent of it. No differential equations, no integration. Uh, You're just calculating. And that's a discrete time neural network, which you can have recurrent connections. or Not recurrent just means that, you know, you can have a loop in the way things connect. It can, things connect back on each other. Um, Or then you you take a tiny step up and you have uh, continuous time recurrent neural networks where you have, instead of just having the next state calculated like I described, that all that calculation does is produce a delta, a slight change in the activation of the, 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 the downstream neuron, the postsynaptic neuron. Um, and from there, you can start talking about spiking models. But, you know, one of the best spiking models in the world, to my knowledge, is uh, Eugene Izakevich's model has only four parameters, uh, two equations, and is remarkably simple to solve, um, on purpose, he designed it to be computationally efficient and yet still produce an incredibly rich repertoire of uh, neural behaviors. So, yeah, I mean, it does take. Oh, I mean, it's it's easier, I suppose, if you can if you're comfortable writing down the mathematical equations. But about the most complicated thing you have to write down for some of these models is a summation. That's that's the hardest bit, and conceptually summations are awfully simple. So, yeah, I can imagine um, uh, tinkerers and, and, you know, just somebody who's interested in it but not studying it, not doing it for a living, uh, making some progress in this direction.
0: And I think tinkering's the critical component. I mean, certainly from all the artificial life developers I've, I've talked with, I mean, yourself included, it is a, a time tinkering You know, if if it's taken as a hobby or an academic interest or what have you, the time component is critical with regards to artificial life development. You're, you know, the time-tuning, time-tuning, time-tuning component in order to get any of these simulations up and running. And really, if there's something behind all of these different ideas, it's the ability to write code, observe what's going on, then tune the code in some way or let the code tune itself in the case of genetic algorithms. So let's talk a little bit more about physics, and this is interesting with the idea of of kind of artificial life in simulated environments. I know Polyworld has a, a simple simulated environment. Certainly, a number of, of the folks we've we've had on have simulated environments. I encourage Gerald Young when he comes on to put his stuff in simulated environment. Bruce, as you listen in. I mean, obviously the, the genetic algorithm component probably is slightly more uh, connected with what you're thinking about in terms of the EvoGrid, but if you have a kind of toolkit that you're going to be using for uh, the EvoGrid deep, I mean, surely it will contain all of these components in some regard.
2: Oh, it's interesting and uh, Larry was talking because I was trying to think of how how neural networks or artificial life, GAs, and whatnot, fit into the EvoGrid, and one of the things that the EvoGrid is about is it's about that the algorithms have to sort of self-assemble as well as the objects. So my whole focus is is not to write a a GA or anything like that. It's actually to build a physics and throw enough computing at it that you get an origin event. So origins of vesicles and origins of it's all sort of described pretty well in the, the funny whimsical movie that we made that we launched I guess a couple of weeks ago was, was was launched but it's it has to emerge so that's the challenge of the evolution grid is it as what dick Corden calls the artificial origin of life or the ar, origin of artificial life so you, you you can't actually build algorithm and structure you can only build physics
0: but you in some regard I mean I think This is the the ultimate and this isn't the religious intelligence design but this is certainly the intelligence design discussion that we've had in in lives previous you need to have some appreciation of what mechanisms need to come through these algorithms in order to brew the soup to use a, a metaphor so i mean i think the irrespective of whether you write these things explicitly and this is one of the beauties of the kind of Interaction between neural networks and genetic algorithms that Larry has with Polyworld, that also we've talked about with Steve Graham. That on some level the mathematics does break down into primitives which are, are intercompatible. But you raise an interesting point with this idea of physics um, in terms of the, the nature of simulated environments. And certainly talking to Larry and uh, talking to Gerald with regards to the physics that he's implemented in uh, Darwin at Home, and also Jeffrey Ventrella with regards to Gene Pool. I mean, the question of physics doesn't necessarily have to map onto uh, real-world physics. It doesn't have to map onto uh, gravity, Newtonian physics, even quantum mechanics. Physics, as we talk about it in an artificial life context, just, I guess, describes some uh, mathematical constraints of the system. Is this your understanding, Larry? Yeah,
1: in fact, I mean, uh, I've... Been thinking about an entirely different system that was based more sort of an artificial chemistry, um, I suppose one step up from uh, an artificial physics, um, and I can certainly imagine wanting to uh, build a system that, that starts at that level, um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I like what what Bruce says about uh, you know not having to build any algorithms in and any in, any higher level algorithms in, but on the other hand, we're all You know, we're working at different levels, and I think for now, at least, that's a good thing. uh, A lot of these different approaches should be explored. Um, Chris Langton uh, put it nicely, I said, we all have to write an IOU at some level, and it's just a matter of deciding what level you want to write that IOU at. Um, And as you said, it's important to sort of understand a little bit of the – the the physics or the real-world dynamics um, of the system you're trying to model. Um, When Danny Hillis, working on the connection machine, was uh, trying to model uh, fluid dynamics, model fluid flows, by modeling individual little point particles, they actually managed to get really good, indistinguishable from reality, quote-unquote, fluid dynamics um, out of point masses, you know, bouncing off each other with billiard ball physics, uh, moving at unit velocity on a hexagonal grid. Um, But each of the design decisions that they put into their their very, very simple model was kind of understood by people who knew fluid dynamics and knew physics and were thinking about this in terms of, you know, molecular interactions only with the ultimate simplified versions of molecules. And, as long as you kind of write your I O U at the right level for what you want to study, and you design the system at that level to the best of your ability, taking into account what you know, you can oftentimes get these emergent levels um, that you don't program in, and uh, have great success at that. Uh, you know, when I look back at uh, early A life algorithms, um, uh, you know Tom Ray. Um, wanted to go in search of um, uh, sort of evolutionary phenomena that that he, he knew about um, from from his biological work and uh, his ecological work, and uh, you know modeled things at a certain level with his evolving code and was able to easily produce all the things that he he was searching for and at each stage someone we, we, we pick our levels we write our IOUs, and you know if we've done a decent job of understanding the the lower level system people are actually surprisingly uh, successful at evolving that next level up
0: Certainly inspirational words for for Bruce in particular the next thing that occurred to me and particularly through my recent writing in nature inspired informatics was the kind of level that we traditionally associate artificial life development with particularly the ideas of, of genetic algorithms and certainly writing for nature inspired informatics but more importantly doing the chapter reviews for it reading the kind of cutting-edge associated with genetic programming made me realize that perhaps what Bruce is doing is almost a genetic programming experiment rather than genetic algorithms experiment in terms of throwing just a wide variety of more you know, possibilities into the soup and seeing what emerges and certainly, when I look at uh, Carl Sin's early work and these kind of moving, blocky creatures which still are, are fundamentally part of the artificial life community, I mean, this is what you know Gerald and Brevet and Framsticks are all moving towards. I think Framsticks has a small genetic programming component, but I've always wondered what would emerge out of a true genetic programming implementation of artificial life. Larry, you have a good surveying of the community. What's your thinking associated with genetic programming?
1: Well, I think genetic programming is really basically just genetic algorithms applied to trees of Lisp functions. Um, so it, it's not surprising that it does well. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fine uh, environment in which to work. Uh, Carl Sims's work, both on the aesthetic selection of those beautiful, beautiful images he created and the blocky creatures, was effectively genetic programming because he was evolving Lisp functions. Uh, and, and not necessarily just with bit strings. He was doing it on, you know, uh, graph trees. Um, so uh, effectively, he was already doing genetic programming. Um, and it, it, it's 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 one very good way to go. One thing I think is interesting about EvoGrid, if I understand this correctly, uh, Bruce. And please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But I think Bruce doesn't even want to build in genetic programming or genetic algorithms or anything. He wants to put in physics. And let evolution go to work, which is an interesting approach. I mean, evolution really is this sort of this tautology, this unavoidable tautology uh, that you know that which survives persists. And uh, if if you have the right kind of system capable of sustaining sort of continuous energy flow and continuous variation and some method of reproduction, some method of replication. Let's stay away from reproduction. That brings in other ideas, but replication, just a a copying of some sort. The things that copy themselves the best and innovate in obtaining the resources to make more copies um, are effectively carrying out evolution and, and genetics, but without having any algorithms built in. And that's that's a, sort of a lovely vision, a lovely way to, to try things.
0: And I guess my question back to you would be, could entropy be the, the fundamental selection component? I mean, when I think about evo-grid based in genetic programming, it's not traditional, as, as you say, genetic programming. It is that the physics is, is part of the, uh, the selection there. Or if it's not an entropic process, I can't imagine how it would be phrased, but that there are these components in the physics that actually makes the kind of selection that moves towards uh, be it RNA, be it DNA, be it something that's completely abstract and perhaps analogous or perhaps not analogous at all. I mean, I think that's the beauty of, of having some form of physics that you almost get the precursor to what you want to get in, in you know, ge- traditional genetic algorithms or genetic programming just in the physics. Do you, do you see that metaphor?
1: Yes, I do.
0: Um, in fact, if
1: you go back to um, um, Schrodinger's "What Is Life?" 1940 something, um, he put forward the idea that the defining component of life is basically a, um, uh, a a localized reduction in entropy, a localized defeating of you know local and temporal and temporary uh, defeating of the second law of thermodynamics. And he made a point that basically life uh, feeds on negative entropy. Um, And basically negative entropy, the way I like to think of it, is not so much entropy going, but it's exactly the same thing. But I think of it as as information. And positive information is negative entropy. And so I think of living things as these little islands of uh, information, that self-sustaining information. Um, and, And in fact... I mean, uh, you can almost think, I think, in a very real way. It, it's, it, it's just a metaphor, but um, I think information is so fundamental that you can almost think of, like, the, the matrix, the, that, those lovely images of all the letters floating down on the screen, forming the reality of the, the, the matrix uh, virtual reality. You can look at our re- very real physical reality and see sort of ones and zeros uh, streaming from the sun, coming in and, and providing not just free energy, but free information, providing information. There's a fellow, um, uh, what's his name? Um, I'll have to look it up. There's there's a terrific little book on evolution and information, um, Avery, Avery is his name, that um, he manages to calculate the number of bits associated with the absorption of a photon uh, at room temperature. So it's like if, if, a, if a photon hits a cell on a plant and it's just turned into heat, that's how many bits effectively are lost at that point. But being a living system, the plant can take that, that, that information and use it to extract energy and to do something useful and to sustain itself and sustain this little local island of, of negative entropy of information so yeah I think entropy is both key to understanding life and and key to measuring and, and determining what's going on in our um, in our artificial systems and ultimately I think we'll get around to using and to understand what's going on in our physical systems
0: certainly certainly. And moving a step up in terms of what artificial life developers should know when they come to creating artificial life environments, how important do you think kind of broad surveying of artificial intelligence is with regards to creating artificial life systems?
1: Mm, Well, I'm a little biased there. Um, I, 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 I sort of got into this about the time that people were realizing that symbolic processing in the more traditional good old-fashioned AI, GoFi, um, was not really panning out, at least not as a path to really general robust intelligence. I mean, it's done great things with expert systems and, uh, there, there are more examples of products based on GoFi than there are on artificial life. I'm pretty certain, but, um, uh, as an approach to leading to real general artificial intelligence, GOFI wasn't really working out. And so I've, I've eschewed it uh, almost across the board and just, uh, you know, stayed away. <laughs> so,
0: But, I mean, the interesting thing about contemporary artificial intelligence is so much of it wants to be artificial life fundamentally. I mean, this is this is Emin uh, Harvey. I mean, these are all these kind of, I mean, fundamentally Rodney Brooke as well. I mean, these are all these you know, artificial life, artificial slash artificial intelligence researchers. And I oh, think yes.
1: That... Now, w- whether they use the words artificial life or not, and actually some of them do. I went on an artificial life world tour with Chris Langton and Rodney uh, Brooks, so I, mean, I know he's well aware of his connections with the community. Um, uh, whether they currently and routinely use the terms or not, they're definitely doing related work to ALIFE.
0: Certainly, certainly and i mean i think it's something that uh, you know people may need to uh, at least have a, a precursory sense of in terms of um at least the popular connections that people want to make between artificial life and artificial intelligence so you mentioned briefly predator prey models and also i guess somewhere through the discussion of physics uh, sustainable simulation dynamics these kind of problems i mean again as you as you started this discussion, you said really it's to do with the kind of simulations you're looking to write, and ultimately these two components are part of that right well I
1: knew that I wanted to at least approach artificial intelligence in you know in a very different way in a distributed processing way and being heavily influenced by the early uh, PDP books parallel distributed processing books and uh, connectionism and all that um, and uh, so I, I very much needed to start at the sort of neural network level. I I, I didn't want to try to evolve neural networks from fundamental physics. Um, so and but in fact I've looked at something that ends up looking a bit like predator prey models in PolyWorld, which is just basically um, the distribution of agents to food. Uh, but uh, it, it was really a matter of them over over foraging one patch making the other patch more attractive. And so the agents would uh, start foraging over there, and then they'd overforge that and make it less attractive. And it kind of had the dynamics of, uh, you know, the, the sort of food population versus the agent population had this predator-prey, lotka volterra dynamics that ultimately settled into what's called an ideal free distribution where the agents distributed themselves very nicely according to whatever fraction of the food was in this patch, you'd have exactly that fraction of agents uh, over there and, and, and so on for each of the patches. But uh, um, I mean, these are all... That, that was an outcome of, of, of my system, um, but people look at that from sort of first principles, um, and I'm not sure exactly what you're after, well, after with sustainable simulation dynamics, but that makes me think that uh, again, we have to be so Try to be smart in picking our um, our models so that we can um, basically coax the maximum information out of those compute cycles that we're we're using up so rapidly, and uh, be able to run these things and get useful, interesting results in reasonable time periods, and um, and sustain them long enough to to, to get useful, interesting results. Uh, I have had people, uh, you know, ask me, well, do you have Polyworld running uh, around the clock all the time? And I thought I should, might should do that, but mostly I've sort of used it for targeted uh, specific experiments. In fact, most of what I'm doing these days is geared towards looking at the, um, the complexity of the neurodynamics in the evolving agents and um, and hope to get to the point where I can start teasing apart what specific design patterns in the brains of these agents is giving rise to the complexity dynamics figure out what part of structure is causing all this interesting function but um, that's just the that, that's just the current uh, current theme
0: certainly I'm having a lot of fun with it currently with regards to noble ape as well and I think it's a uh... Something which people can do is they start writing artificial life simulations, or once they have a you know a existing artificial life simulation, start looking at running it for for long periods of time and what comes out of that. And certainly, in terms of bug tracking and things like that, you do tend to find quite curious extremes uh, over long simulation cycles. But I wanted to also talk with you this evening about the the teaching of artificial life because we've mentioned a a number of uh, universities around the world that are either actively teaching artificial life in some sense or using artificial life as part of a a kind of graduate research program or an internal research program. Do you get a sense of the the number of universities that are teaching artificial life currently either to undergraduates or graduate students? You know, I I.
1: Uh, you've got me curious. Um, I don't actually know how many people are doing it or anything. I, I should, I should look around and see what all is going on. I know there are courses out there. You know, a quick Google will, will turn up uh, a, a number of different people teaching something. Uh, you know, specifically calling it course Artificial Life two thousand eight, Artificial Life, and you know, I can see the uh, course number, and so I, I, I know the people are doing this. I, 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 I'm not sure exactly what. They're teaching it. It's interesting. Um, a lot of it. Th- there's another person at Indiana University where I am, uh, Luis Rocha, who teaches a course called Bioinspired Computing, and I think a number of the courses kind of take that line. What's his name? Gary uh, Flake's book um, uh, is, is, is what the textbook that um, that uh, Luis uses, and um, so. I think people are taking quite different approaches. I designed mine, um, the course I teach in artificial life as an approach to artificial intelligence, specifically to try to give a lot of these fundamental technologies and, and insights into seeing intelligence as an emergent phenomenon uh, and, and what that means and what you can, how you can leverage that. Um, and give a general introduction to the field and, oh, bring in some, um, ideas about, you know, I've, I've always said from the earliest days that, uh, polyworld was, um, sort of a way to work our way up the intelligence spectrum. Yes, I want human level intelligence in the machine, but I'm, you know, happy to go for computational aplegia before the lab rat, before the simian and so on, and, um, so I've also done some research into um, animal cognition, find, trying to find out a little bit about what what we know about the way animals uh, think, what levels of intelligence they're uh, capable of expressing. And uh, some of that's fascinating, so I introduce a little bit of that and uh, talk about uh, Coco the gorilla and dolphins and uh, Betty the crow and Alex the parrot and and. and, and Honeybees that have learned to distinguish uh, abstract concepts of same versus different. Um, And and fruit flies that have some kind of um, salience mechanism that's kind of like an attention mechanism. Uh, So anyway, oh, and information theory. Since I claim that information is key to understanding all this, uh, uh, I do a little introduction to information theory as part of the class. So I, I try to teach some of the very things that that you know we we stated at the beginning are the fundamentals: genetic algorithms, neural networks, information theory, um, evolution, inf- how evolution and learning interact with each other. Um, these sort of different kinds of organisms, both simulated and real, and um, I get into that Danny Hillis work that I was talking about. Uh, and as I said, you know, start it and stop it with uh, with Chris Langton stuff. So,
0: and I mean, a question that I wanted to ask you when when you were last on, particularly with regards to stopping and starting with Chris Langton, although you have mentioned more um, more contemporary um, theorists, is I mean, certainly through discussion uh, in Biota Live and and with the the participants, there is a strong contemporary sense that artificial life has a a good impact um, in in companies like Apple and Intel, in my own experience, and certainly looking at Rodney Brooks' work, I mean, you know, the, the sky's the limit in terms of the applications there. You're getting a very broad range of students coming through that may go on to, uh, you know, to, to be Nigel Griffith in academia or may go on to actually work for one of these companies or go out into, um, in, in terms of bioinformatics, I mean, folks like AID, and we've had a, a few other listeners who've corresponded with me that do exactly what AID does at other uh, um, biochemistry um, companies. So, I mean, I think the diversity of uses for if, if contemporary artificial life are really, you know, the the imagination is really the limit in terms of these uses. If you were... <laughs>
1: Fundamental skills that, that I'm teaching in this class, I think, are um, of help no matter what they do with it. Whether whether they go into true artificial life as their primary research direction, or that the, they go off into industry or they take another tack in academia, I, I the nicest I think the nicest compliment anyone any former student has ever given me was a, a student from my A-Life class who got accepted to MIT. And um, uh, emailed me a few months into the semester, saying, "You know, of all the courses I took at university, yours is the one has been the most help here at MIT." And I thought, "Wow, <laughs> that's that's pretty much as nice a thing as a teacher can can hope to hear."
0: I think this is the theme through what we're trying to do with things like Bio to Live as well. That the the nature of what we're discussing is may appear trivial precursorily to folks. You know, tuning in on an occasional basis, but for the practitioners and the people as as you have who have devoted large portions of their life uh, to, you know, to the discipline, it needs to move probably in the next, you know, five to 10 years into something which may actually exist on its own as, as a discipline. Do you see this happening in, in with regards to your teaching of artificial life? Do you see it becoming something that would be a standalone discipline within perhaps the School of Informatics, perhaps the School of Computer Science? Is this your long term view? Well, I mean, to a
1: certain extent, it already is. I mean, you will find, I mean, there's a fairly strong A life community at the, in the academic community. Um, uh, I think I may have even mentioned uh, A life. Uh, 11 was in Europe for the first time for this particular conference, and um, last summer. And the um, the level of work, the quality of work going on uh, in Europe was actually astounding uh, and delightfully so. Um, and 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 there's some some brilliant work going on over here. Sometimes it shows up under the guise of robotics. Um, uh, and and I know, I mean, we have a fairly strong statement right in every you know every everything we talk about in our complex systems group uh in in the school of informatics where i am uh, we you, we almost always mention artificial life uh, right up front we consider it you know part of our charter part of our uh group's theme so um to a certain extent it it's already here now it's not a huge community but i mean there is Artificial Life and European Conference on Artificial Life and Simulation of Adaptive Behavior, and IEEE now has an Artificial Life uh, Symposium as part of a general computational intelligence uh, conference. Uh, There's actually uh, quite a bit of uh, work and, and interest in the area, probably about as much as the field can sustain right now.
0: I I guess this is my point, really, that in order to move the field further forward, particularly with regards to the idea of, uh, you know, potentially Bachelor of Science in Artificial Life, they're already MSc in Artificial Life programs, but moving it perhaps a little, um, you know, lower into a Bachelor program with regards to particularly the applications in industry. I mean, I think this is what's going to be interesting in the next few years, and you really are in you know, in in the perfect position to to motivate this kind of discussion and also have this kind of thinking. Certainly watching it as an observer, the need for things like textbooks, the need for things like um, unified curriculum, some kind of discussion associated with what this thing is moving towards, similar to what occurs as you're well aware in physics and possibly also in biology and mathematics and these kind of areas. I mean, I think this is what will be the interesting transition in the next five to ten years, and I'm Certainly interested in having you on on a kind of semi-regular basis to instigate this kind of discussion in your own thinking. In, in terms of what I'm saying, I mean, does that go with what you're thinking? And can you talk a little bit about that that potential in the in the future? Well,
1: I, honestly, now you're. I now I have really not sure what I think about where the future is going with this stuff because I, I don't currently see artificial life as being quite that sort of formalized you, you mean by the time you get to teaching um, a calculus class, calculus has been taught for so many years now has the well the field has been around for so long, and then it 's also been taught in universities for so long that it 's kind of prescription it's uh, you, you always teach this, you always teach it in this order that they can hire lecturers in they don 't even have to. Have the uh, the faculty do it because it's the course is extremely well designed and they know exactly what they want the outcomes to be. Artificial life, at least for a while, is going to need to remain fluid and um, ho- I mean I hope it still is sufficiently innovative and sufficiently a moving target that there's not going to be a one true artificial life um, syllabus created that is going to be the way to teach artificial life um, for what it's worth you should also uh, realize that um, uh, university faculty are they, they've worked hard to get where they are and they have there's this thing called academic freedom uh, and it is invoked to mean I get to teach what I darn well want to teach <laughs> um, as long as this, the core courses are covered and uh, so there's a, there's a lot of I mean it, it's a good thing I mean that there's so much academic freedom that you can I can design a course that teaches artificial life in a way that I think is important, um, but uh, Luis Rocha can design a course that's really getting around the same ideas and yet it's an entirely different course uh, his with his bio inspired computing. Um, and yet, both of them are very much sort of, you know, in the a life realm. So, uh, I think it's a little too early to be trying to um, codify uh, uh, the artificial life curriculum.
0: So, a top-down example in this is the idea of Java teaching, teaching the programming language Java. And this is certainly something that I experienced in '95 in when I started university. I didn't take computer science, but I certainly spent a lot of time in the university leading up to actually going to university, and my experience with regards to what happened with Java was that all the computer science courses associated with C, C++, all the stuff that led towards that was removed and replaced with Java almost instantaneously, and I'm trying to think I mean, outside of areas that I know, it's very difficult for me to think about certain aspects of law, and I'm sure in engineering there are examples, but I think it's in in some regard, a little—I I wouldn't want to say naive—but certainly the length of time that these things have been going on should, if anything, really distill it in more solidity, uh, rather than still make it to something which is vague. Particularly if I look at how fast computer science courses uh, change, associated with fashion, and uh, you know, I'm sure .net was rolled out just as quickly as Java was. But what do you say with regards to artificial life being fundamentally fluid and organic? Currently, I think is. Uh, very true, but as as you note, there are so many courses that seem to be cropping up that are teaching artificial life, and certainly the feedback I get from doing Bio to Live is that a number of these students listening to Bio to Live almost like a tutorial in some regard hmm. is that this is is being informally organised uh in a way where it's almost screaming out for uh, a certain layer of formality to cover that. So I mean I guess that's just my point with regards to this, that as a as a passive and somewhat distant observer, uh, through the correspondence that I've had with students and also folks such as yourself, Larry and in in talking about things like A Life eleven, my sense is that there is almost a a need for not necessarily, as you say, strict dictated calculus courses coming in, but at least some acknowledgement that this is a, a, an intellectual movement that you know merits some uh, degree of surveying and not necessarily explicit formality, but at least some general agreement the world over that this is what artificial life means. These are the components that lead into it. If people want to come to a conversation, and this we find through the bio conversations mailing list, continuously, that because there is still no set, you know, you need to know a little bit about this, a little bit about that, but at least this kind of smorgasbord of ideas for people that that come in still who don't have a background necessarily in half a dozen of the areas that we've discussed, but are very strong in, um, you know, Dawkins' genetic algorithm from, ironically, the Blind Watchmaker or related books associated with that. My interest in in bringing you on regularly, and also I'll talk to Mark Fedeau about this as well, is that as a passive observer, I see the need for this, particularly in industry as well. I think if there, were, if there was even a slightly more level of formalization associated with the teaching of artificial life, these concepts and ideas could easily be kind of brought together in something that actually was recognized formally by industry in a way that is currently kind of informally being recognized. Bruce, as you listen into this, what's your thinking about this discussion?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a field I agree with. With Larry, the field is very, very fluid, and definitions are shifting, and, you know, we're, we're seeing artificial life applied to synthetic biology and chemistry now. I guess with what Mark Badeau will point out uh, next uh, next week, is it next week he's coming on?
0: Um, no, Zan Gill will be on the next show in two weeks, and Mark will be on in a month's time.
2: In a month's time. I mean, he talks about artificial life starting in the digital realm, and then Moving into robotics and, and chemistry, you know, its center seems to be spreading out and moving. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, the field's actually getting bigger. And that's kind of exciting. Yeah, and it's the, definitely the EVO not EVO just part, one thing. <laughs> yeah. And then my, my goal, the EvoGrid project, and you'll see it in EvoGrid the movie, is I know I keep plugging the movie, but it shows a very cartoony way of uh, showing, going from a digital simulation to a nanofabbed uh, chemical entity for the public to understand this.
0: So I think this this probably concludes the discussion this evening um, and, and maybe even uh, frames the discussion uh, with Mark as well with regards to this topic. But, I mean, in terms of what we've been discussing, Larry, does this gel with you at all in terms of just something that you'll take away and think about? Uh,
1: yes, and... and And also, if there are some undergraduates listening to this who think they might want to pursue a PhD uh, and with a predominantly artificialized slant, uh, I'm at Indiana University.
0: Certainly. And I think, you know, Virgil as an example, I mean, I think the potentially even for undergraduates who are in the U.S. and looking for, or even high school, you know, looking to go to college, which colleges they would like to go to. Can you give some introduction to Virgil's experience and how he came into artificial life as an undergraduate? And Virgil's not your normal
1: case. I knew that as soon as I met him. Uh, uh, he actually had been going to a different university, uh, Alabama, I think. Um, don't don't hold me to that. Um and uh had come up i think he had thought to to work with douglas hofstetter and he was just sort of bouncing around and talking to different people and he landed in my office a few times and we got to talking more and more and um we found that we had such strong shared interests that we ended up working together for a couple of years and then uh He finally uh, finished up his degree. I think he actually got his degree back from his original university just because he had enough credits. And with the ones he was able to import from IU, he finally finished up his bachelor's and um, uh, headed off to Caltech for their uh, computational neuroscience uh, studies there. So um, he really was just actively pursuing what interested him the most, and and this was it, and so we, we, we got on really well.
0: So the moral initially is find, out, find sympathetic academics and, and take it from there if you're currently an undergraduate student looking to pursue artificial life in the future. Absolutely. Well, you need to find a place where the things that interest you are interest the faculty. <laughs> certainly. Larry, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you this evening. And Bruce, I guess you'll be on in two weeks' time with Dan Gill. I guess so. I'm really interested to hear what San has to say with regards to the environmental stuff. Thank you both very much for participating in this evening's Biota Live, and thanks, folks, for listening in. Good night.